0: Thinking this afternoon, uh, Chuck Swindoll, who's just a master storyteller and uh, presents the word so wonderfully, uh, he said something one time that uh, has always stuck with me. He said, To make the Bible boring is an abortion. Abortion is to kill something that's alive. And I'm sorry, but there's just no way to make the Great White Throne Judgment happy clapping. I mean, we got some tough stuff in front of us here tonight. And, uh, but it's, it's uh, needful that we pay attention to it. And I just wanted to kind of lay a foundation here tonight for our time through something that's kind of an interesting side note as we conclude our series on the time of the signs. And it begins with Revelation chapter 1, where John the Beloved says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me, and by the way, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, sorry. But John said, I heard a... Uh, behind me, a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek, Greek alphabet. I am the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches, which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, to Pergamus, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Now, John, the beloved, one of the Three inner circle of Jesus when he walked the earth was given the visions of Revelation while on the island of Patmos, and he was instructed to write the things that you see. Now, we made the point in our message about the end of the church age that this book self describes as a book of prophecy. It says in Revelation 1:3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this what? Prophecy and keep, guard from loss or injury, those things which are written in it, for the time is near. And then at the conclusion, in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, we find John says, for our Jesus, I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this, what? Prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Now, it seems logical and reasonable that if the book opens with noting that it's prophecy and closes with noting that it's prophecy, everything in the middle has to be prophecy. Now, the thing I wanted to point out before we begin is something like everything else these days, That is debated among Bible scholars and commentators, and that's alongside of whether or not there's a chronology of church history in the letters to the seven churches. And this other debated issue is, in what order did John write his books? Now, remember, John was told to write what he sees. He says he was on the island of Patmos when he received these visions. And church historians tell us, that John was released from Patmos, he did go back to Ephesus and it was in Ephesus after Patmos that John wrote four of his writings. Now before he was banished to Patmos for the testimony of Jesus, he wrote the Gospel of John. Now upon his release, think about this, he's on Patmos, he receives these radical visions of how everything is going to come to an end, the complete history of of the church age, what's happening in heaven, and what happens at the end of all times. He's given details and specifics about the millennium. What do you think he's going to write first when he gets back to Ephesus? Revelation or 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John? Well, he's going to write 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. I'll just go ahead and answer for you. Now, why is that important for us to know? Well, it isn't. I just wanted you to know that. No, actually, it is important. And it's important for this reason. John saw what was going to happen in the church, and so have we. John saw what was happening in the heavenly realm after the church age, and so have we. John saw what happens during the tribulation, and so have we. John saw what happens during the millennium and the end of it, and so have we. John saw who goes to heaven and who goes to hell and why. And so will we through our time together tonight. Now, what did this do to John? What did this information do to him? Not just simply inform him or make him aware of future events. What it caused John to do was to take off the gloves and not mince words. No holding back, throw down, cut to the chase, pull out all the stuff, put the pedal to the metal, no holds barred, and write three epistles that are unlike any other in the New Testament and that is 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Because of what he saw, he was so radically moved that he couldn't keep silent about issues that people need to be aware of in the body of Christ. And I pray that what happened with John will happen with us. I pray as we see the end of all things, which is our title tonight, that it will move us to boldness. To speak on behalf of the Lord, as John did, in direct ways that are unaccustomed uh, within the culture and society that we now live. My prayer is, our time tonight and through this series, is that we will be bold for Jesus like never before. Somebody say, Amen. Now, listen to what John says in his first letter. And by the way, J. Vernon McGee, every time he changed pastorates, the first book he taught was 1 John. Why? No holds barred. It would separate the wheat and the chaff, divide the sheep and the goats, so to speak. And that's because John wrote things like this after he saw the end of all things. He said, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we what? Lie and do not practice the truth. Now remember that. He's talking about lying and not practicing the truth. That'll come into play when uh, the end of all things comes into view here this evening. But he says, if we walk in the light, as he, Jesus, is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, God's son, cleanses us from all sin. Then he says this, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive who? ourselves and the truth is not in us if we confess our sins now listen this is not just simply a repeated yes God I'm a sinner confess means to see as or speak of as the same so in other words if you define sin the way God defines sin and you agree with God that you're a sinner he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness If we say that we have not sinned, or if we say, you know, that's unfair, that's not a sin. My sexual preference shouldn't be a sin. But listen, if we say we're not sinning, and what we do when God has declared something to be a sin, we're calling Him a liar and His Word, which is who? Who's the Word of God? Jesus. His Word is not in us. I told you John took the gloves off. And he did not mince any words. Now, This is how what John saw affected him. And I pray that it affects us the same way, that an uncompromised boldness will be born in us because of what we have learned thus far and what we see tonight. Now, as far as history goes, in our text, the millennium is over. Jesus has ruled and reigned in righteousness now for a thousand years. Satan was released for a short time. And this time began with everyone entering into the millennium as a believer. The sheep and the goats have already been divided. And only believers entered in to the millennial reign of Christ. And by the end of a thousand years, millions join ranks with Satan to fight against the uh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords and the Holy City. And they are soundly defeated by fire uh, from heaven. Now, What we're going to read tonight is what happens next. You ready? Stand and read with me, please, from Revelation chapter 20. We'll look at verses 11 through 15 and then continue on a little ways into chapter 21. Revelation 20 verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Lord, we're thankful for this information. And I pray as we've been talking this evening, God, that it would just give us such a burden for those lost and perishing around us when we see their eternal destiny apart from you. But Lord, I pray also that you remind us of our eternal destiny because of you, for all who are in Christ and born again. So Lord, we pray that as we conclude this series together, that you would speak to our hearts and give us ears to hear what you're saying to the church of the last days. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now the first thing to draw our attention to is the word throne is used over 30 times in the book of Revelation itself. It's only used, uh, uh, described as a great white throne one time in all the Bible and it's here. And this phrase great white throne is either pointing to a different throne, some commentators would argue, or it's simply highlighting the fact that there is a pure and unchanging righteousness of the one who is seated on it. Now he is of such a magnitude of glory and pure power that heaven and earth flee from his face, meaning his countenance. So I'd want to know who's on this throne, don't you? Now, it's clearly one who judges. And it is clearly God. Verse 12 says, it is God. Now, the first thing I want to draw our attention to as far as a point of application is that we live in this age where many are following after what I call peace out Jesus. He's just cool with everybody and everything. He's kind of a (laughs) surf cat kind of Jesus. And listen... He's the Jesus who many say, you know, you can kind of do what you want and still go to heaven. Just love each other and it's all going to work out. Get along and no matter what you believe or do, you're still going to make it. You're still going to be in my presence because after all, I am love and it's inconsistent that a God of love would create a place like hell. That's the argument and the thinking that many make today. But here's what we need to remember about this one seated on the great white throne. Jesus said in John 5, to 23, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to who? To the Son. Who's the judge of all the earth? The Son, Jesus. That all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Now, you cannot, as many religions claim today, have a relationship with the Father and bypass the Son. The Son is how you access the Father. You cannot come to the Father except through Jesus. If you don't have the Son, you don't have the Father either. Amen? Yes. Now the one on the throne is Jesus. The one to whom all judgment was committed to by the Father. The one through whom, Colossians 1.15-17 says, everything was created. The creator of heaven and earth. The one from whom heaven and earth are going to flee. Now, Isaiah 51.6 describes this a little bit for us, where it says, Lift up your eyes to the heavens and look on the earth beneath. For the heavens will vanish away like smoke, the earth will grow old like a garment, and those who dwell in it will die in like manner. But my salvation will be forever, and my righteousness will not be abolished. Isn't that good news tonight? That our salvation is forever. Now, Peter adds this in 2 Peter 3.10, giving further clarity that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, or suddenly without notification, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be what? Burned up. Now, it is true that we have a responsibility to take care of this planet. It is true because Adam was put in the Garden of Eden to tend it. God said, tend it and keep it. Take care of what I have made. But we also need to remember what God foretold about this planet. Now listen, for those who are worried about it, climate change isn't going to destroy the earth. I don't care what AOC says or any of the other letters of the alphabet. Doesn't matter, some of these ridiculous propositions from uh, uh, Thunberg, the little girl who all of a sudden became a scientist when she was like 10, somehow, by osmosis, I guess. But listen, climate change isn't going to destroy the earth, but God is. He's going to destroy it completely. As a matter of fact, he said in Genesis 8.22, that seed, time, and harvest, everything's going to continue until I'm done with this place. And I'm obviously paraphrasing So we don't need to worry about it. God has set a cycle to keep us fed and keep us covered and keep the earth watered and all those things until he is going to destroy the earth himself. The fact is there is a new heaven and there is a new earth coming. And we'll talk more about that in a little bit. Now, the next thing to note is the earth has at least a thousand and seven years left to fulfill what God has spoken is going to happen on it. I'll let that sink in for a moment. There's a thousand-year millennium. There's a seven-year tribulation. A thousand plus seven is a thousand and seven. I think we only have about a thousand and seven years left of this earth. That means I think we're going home pretty soon. Just let me break that down for you. I think the rapture is at any moment. We'll be out of here in a twinkling of an eye. Amen? Now, verse 11 should draw our minds back to the fact that Jesus is the one who bought us back from the law of sin and death by his own blood. So by virtue of that act alone, he alone is worthy to set and qualify to sit on the throne of final judgment and demand an account from the unbelieving dead for both their actions and their rejection of him. Now, we need to remember that Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. You cannot limit the atoning power of the blood of Jesus. It is sufficient to cover every sin of every human who ever existed. So does that mean everybody goes to heaven? No, not at all. But we live in a time of growing egalitarianism. And I think we all kind of have the gist of what that means. It's just equality of everything. Everything has to be equal. Now the big phrase today is equality of outcome. Everything has to have the same outcome for every person, no matter what they do, no matter what they achieve in life, no matter how hard they work, or even if they work, everybody has to have equality of outcome. But here in the spiritual application, and this has made its way into the church via universalism, here's something we need to remember, and here's the first of our three observations. Listen, listen. Jesus determines eternal destiny, he's not man. Jesus uh, determines eternal destinies, not man. And universalism is spiritual equality of outcome. And it's growing in popularity in these last days. And it's still as big of a lie as it's ever been. Everyone does not go to heaven because God is love. Everyone does not go to heaven because God is love. It is true that the only reason anyone goes to heaven is because God is love. But it is also true that everyone in heaven are people who love God. Now, in John, again, 1 John 3.10, he said this. In this, the children of God and the children of who? The devil. How many others are listed here in this group? You're either a child of God or you are a child of the devil. You're either for him or against him. John said this, the one who heard Jesus teach for three and a half years, the one who saw the whole of human history while on the Isle of Patmos said this, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. He would say this in chapter 5 of his first letter, in 1 to 5, whoever, say whoever, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And everyone who loves him, who begot, also loves him who is begotten of him. There's a father and son. By this, we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and keep all the commandments that we agree with or think are rational. We keep his what? Commandments. And then John says this, for this is the love of God. In other words, John is saying, here's how you express your love for God. You love. You show your love for God by keeping His commandments. And then he adds this, and His commandments are not burdensome. Everybody looks at Christianity like it's a bunch of thou shalt nots. No, it's a bunch of thou gets to. And the only thing thou shalt not really is thou shalt not go to hell because of the blood of Jesus. And thou gets to go to heaven because of the blood of Jesus. And that's why John would say these things aren't burdensome like the law. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And, who, uh, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is what? A great teacher? A prophet? No, the Son of God. Now let me qualify our point just a bit. When I say Jesus determines our eternal destiny, that means knowing Jesus or not knowing Jesus is what determines where you spend eternity. Now, we also need to note that believing or knowing Jesus is not the equivalent of cognitive awareness. That somebody once existed and they were a historical figure. Now, I think all of us know that there was a guy named Billy Graham who existed. Some of us probably went and saw him. I know I did. I know that person was used mightily by God. I know many people were saved through his ministry. But I didn't know him. I didn't know him personally. Many today know about everything that Jesus was recorded to do. They know he was a great teacher and some say a prophet. They know he claimed to be the son of God, but they don't know him personally. See, it's not just a historical awareness, a recognition that constitutes belief. Belief leads to doing what God says, amen, and obeying his commandments. Now, Jesus, or if Jesus is only a historical figure and not your personal Savior and Lord, then your eternal destiny is not a pleasant one. At all. Right? But as long as someone is alive, that could change. And that's what the church's mission is. And that's what we need to be bold about, is being about the Father's business of changing people's eternal destinies because faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the So what has Satan been trying to push out of the church? The teaching of the word. word of God. Because it's the only means by which anyone can be saved. It's a book that says, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. Now the other thing we need to take note of is that if you don't know Jesus as Savior and Lord, then when you do stand before God, you will be judged by your works. In other words, Jesus is going to examine you to find out if you're good enough to get into heaven without Him. Now the unit of measure by which you will be judged is Him. Perfection. Not one sin, ever. Not one sin of deed. Not one sin of thought. The standard for entrance by good works is to have never sinned, to have never doubted, to have never wavered, to have never wandered, to have never wished you had what was somebody else's, to have never lied, never lusted, never put anything before serving God, and never once had an evil thought according to God's definitions of good and evil. And if you have never failed in any of these areas, you're in. But you're out. And I'm out, right? Why? Because Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned, not most, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God or none are equal in their goodness to God and you have to be equal to him to go uh, to gain access without him and none of us are. James 2 10 says for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point he is guilty of all. And what that means is that not, not that you become a sinner the first time you sin but that you sin proving that you're already a sinner. You came out of the womb a sinner. That's why David said, in sin, my mother conceived me. That didn't mean he was born through a sinful relationship. That means he was born a sinner. He came into this world as a sinner and as we all did. Now here, this is a bit heavy, but I think we need to recognize it. And that is the great white throne judgment justifies the damnation of the unbeliever. The great white throne judgment justifies the damnation of the unbeliever. John says here, if your name is not in the book of life, which that opportunity is offered to everyone, you're going to be judged by all the times you broke God's law. If your name is in the book of life, Jesus took all the judgment you and I deserved upon himself, and thus he can sit on a throne of uh, pure judgment, righteous judgment and triumph, and say to all to stand before him, I offered you eternal life, And you turned my offer down. And therefore you chose the only other alternative to heaven, which is hell. Now, the unbelieving dead who are now in Hades, which is called the place of torments. We'll talk more about this in a moment. Will stand before God and be sentenced to the second death and be thrown in the lake of fire. Where the beast and false prophet and Satan are. Put this in your brain cells. This happens after the great white throne judgment. People go into the lake of fire after the great white throne judgment. That'll come up as important in a moment. Now, let's uh, keep reading in uh, 1 through 8 of chapter 21. You still here? All right. Pick it up in uh, 21, 1 down through chapter 8 or verse 8. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying, no more Pain. pain. Thank you, Lord. For the former things have passed away. Then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who does what? Overcome Overcome shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all what? Liars. Remember what John said. If you say you don't have sin, you're calling God a liar, and you're actually the one who is a liar, shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is what? The second death. Now, we mentioned this on Sunday when Paul addressed the subject of lying, and I added verse 8 to make the point. It talks about all of these uh, unrepented sins that cause people to uh, really cause everybody to go to hell without Jesus, but these are the unrepentant and those who don't know Christ. Now, the first thing I want to point out from this particular section is this, and this will be our second point. We'll get to it quickly so we can uh, move on to some some more fun stuff. Now, here's our second observation. Listen, there are no after-death opportunities to be saved or morally purified. There are no after-death opportunities to be saved or morally purified. Now, the Catechism of the Catholic Church defines purgatory as an after-death place of purification. And the purpose of this purification is to achieve, and this is from a Catholic website, so as to achieve the holiness necessary to enter the joy of heaven after you die. So in other words, you can die, but not be holy enough to get in and enter into the joy of heaven. And listen, to say that you can be saved by the blood of Jesus, yet not be pure enough to enter heaven, is to commonize the blood of Jesus and diminish its atoning power. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus in purgatory. Just nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? Listen, if you're saved by the blood, you've been washed in the blood. And heaven is going to be your eternal home when you die. And any claim of further purification is an abomination and a lie because of what it does to the blood of Jesus in in theory. Now, there is no purgatory. There are no after-death opportunities to be saved. There is no further moral purification that you can go through if you didn't already have yourself washed in the blood of the Lamb before you died. Now, Revelation 21:27 says, but there shall by no means enter it, the, the New Jerusalem, anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written where? In the Lamb's book of life. Listen, it's the devil who wants people to think they can be morally purified after they're dead. It's the devil who wants to concoct such things so that people can believe and think that even if they live like hell, all they got to do is go through a purification process. It's going to be painful for a short time, but those things are going to purify them and they can still go to heaven, even though they never really fully followed Jesus, even though they didn't really believe in him, even though they never did anything that they are to do as one who is his child. But let me tell you this, nobody in heaven thinks that. Nobody in heaven thinks that there's an after-death opportunity for salvation because the Bible says, via the inspiration of the Spirit in Hebrews 9.27, it is appointed for men to die how often? Once. What happens after that? The judgment. Revelation 22.11 says, He who is unjust, let him be unjust still. He who is filthy, let him be filthy still. He who is righteous, let him be righteous still. He was holy, let him be holy still. And listen, when life ends, eternal destinies have already been finalized. The unjust are permanently unjust. The filthy will experience the eternity of the unrepentant filthy. And the righteous and holy will be eternally righteous and holy and their destinies will be the opposite of one another, these two groups. You either go to heaven or you go to hell. That's it. Now, Revelation also says in 2.11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Because he who overcomes shall not be hurt by what? Second death. We've already read a couple of times that the second death is getting thrown into the lake of fire. So he who overcomes by the blood of the Lamb is not headed for the lake of fire. Amen? Now it's like the old... I'm sorry, where'd you go? Amen. Now, I'm sure we've all heard the old adage. It's appropriate here. Born twice, die once. Born once, die twice. Now, one more thing before we move on. I want to do a little housekeeping here since the subject is in front of us. Hades and hell are not the same place. Hades and Sheol are the same place. And hell and Gehenna are the same place. And Hades and Sheol are the place Jesus described in Luke 16 as a two-compartmented holding cell, so to speak. One half was the place of comforts or Abraham's bosom. The other was the place of torments where the rich man was in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. It is a holding place of the unbelieving dead until the great white throne judgment because we see death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them. So the dead, unbelieving dead, are there until that time. Now, the place of comforts is empty. When Jesus led captivity captive, that's what He was doing. He set them free because He had to be the firstborn among many brethren. He had to be the first to die, or raise again, and live forever before anybody else could. No human, in whatever physical state they are in, could go to heaven before Jesus paid for their sins in full, and then rose and ascended into heaven. And that side of Hades is completely empty. All those people are in heaven right now. Now, I don't want to spend a bunch of time talking about what their physical state is, but we know their spirits are in heaven. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But someday our spirits and our bodies are going to be reunited. The dead in Christ, Paul said, will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will Meet them in the air. Now, here's why I wanted to pause earlier. And I told you to focus on uh, hell being the lake of fire. And people being put there after what? After the great white throne judgment. People go to hell. Hades is not hell. You following me? Hades is not hell. Nobody goes to hell until after the great white throne judgment. So, what that means is nobody's in hell right now. So save your money on books called 23 Minutes in Hell. Nobody's in hell right now. Nobody goes to hell until after the great white throne judgment. Now listen, people who say they went to hell and came back didn't. Are you here? People who say they went to hell and back didn't. Nobody's there. They couldn't have described what's in hell because nobody's there. Until when? Now, if they said God sent them back to warn others, then apparently God didn't understand that Hades and hell are two different places. Because otherwise their very description of where they went disqualifies their report. Because had they gone to a place of torments, they'd have said, yeah, I descended into Hades. God's not going to confuse us, right? He's not going to mix up these two elements of the afterlife and the holding place of the unbelieving dead. Their terminology disproves what they say besides the fact that Jesus talked about the domain of the unbelieving dead in Luke 16, 27, 31, where he said this. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, this is the rich man, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that you would send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of what? Torment. Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, But if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to to him, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. Jesus said it wouldn't have worked then. So that means it won't work now. Now, remember the story of the rich man of Lazarus is not a parable. Parables never use proper names. Parables always say there was a man, there was a person, there was a rich man, or whatever. Here we have somebody that actually bears a proper name. This was a real story, and the lesson is not simply an illustration. It is a factual truth. People coming back from Hades to communicate with the living is never going to happen. Okay? Now, let's... Flip the script. John 1.18, Jesus says, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom, of the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. Now listen, the same thing is true about alleged trips to heaven that is true about alleged trips to hell. Now some would say, well, what about Paul? Well, in 2 Corinthians 12.1-6, Paul says, It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man... In Christ, who 14 years ago, whether in the body, I don't know, or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, for such a one was caught up to the third heaven. That's not uh, planes of heaven. That's talking about the heaven, uh, the domain of the angels and God. There's a starry heaven, and there's the heavens where the birds fly. The third heaven is where God dwells. Such a one was caught up to the third heaven, and I know such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. How he was caught up into paradise and heard what? Inexpressible words, which Paul said, which it is not lawful for anybody, amen, anybody to utter. So Paul says, Of such a one I will boast, yet myself I will not boast except in my infirmities. For though I might desire to boast about what I experienced, I will not be a fool. For I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. Now, I'm sorry to those who bought books or saw movies or were moved by stories that have been told about people who went to heaven. But why would the Apostle Paul, who by his own admission said, I don't know if I had a vision. I don't know if I was really dead after they stole me at Lystra. But 14 years ago, I do know somebody and his name is Paul who had this experience. And the things that I saw in paradise were unlawful for me to speak. And yet, there are those today who say they have the same experiences who come back and write books and go on speaking tours. Is that consistent with what the Bible says? No. Hey, Jesus said nobody's seen God at any time. So anybody that comes back and reports that they've seen the Father seated on the throne is, um, probably needs to repent, right? Now... Let's add this to the mix. They said they went to heaven and saw all the glories we're going to enjoy. The new heaven and new earth haven't even been made yet. They don't even exist yet. They haven't been created yet. But rather than spend the balance of our evening on what is not true, let's focus on what is true. And close our series with some good news. And then a challenge. Now, those in the book of life are going to see the new heaven and the new earth, the holy city, It's described as being as beautiful as a bride on her wedding day. Now the statement of him who sits on the throne in verse 6. It is done. is interesting that it's not the same word used when Jesus was on the cross. And he said, it is finished. That word is teleo. And it means to discharge a debt. In other words, him on the cross when he died, he paid our sin debt in full. That's a good place to say thank you, Jesus. Now... The word done here in Revelation is "ginomai," and it means to come into being. And some say that the new heaven or new earth are simply a renovated old heaven and a, an a old earth. But this phrase indicates it's something that never before existed is going to come into being. And that place is going to be our inheritance forever. What's it like? The city whose builder and maker is God. It's a city where tears, death, sorrow, and pain have never been experienced there. It's a city whose 12 foundations for the walls of the city are made out of precious stones. The 12 gates of the city are comprised of a single pearl each. A city whose streets are paved with gold so pure it's well beyond 24 karat. It's transparent in its purity. It's a city without a temple for we will tabernacle or dwell with both El Shaddai, God Almighty, and the Lamb. The sun and the moon have no role in this new city, for the uh, Lamb and the Father are its light. This Father and the Son are its light. Now again, consider the contrast between those who are at the great white throne judgment and those who see the new Jerusalem. We read in verse 12 of chapter 20, the dead, small and great, standing before God, Books were opened, another was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their what? Their works by the things which were written in the books. In contrast, Revelation 22, 12 to 14, Jesus says, And behold, I am coming what? Quickly or suddenly. And my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. To give, not to judge. To give to everyone according to his work. And again, I am the eternal one, the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those, here it is again, who what? Blessed are those who do His commandments. Now listen close. Those who do His commandments have the right to the tree of life and may enter in to the gates of the city. Now the unbelieving dead are judged according to their works and the believing dead are rewarded according to their works. So listen, as we close this series, our last point is probably the most important of anything that we have looked at in our six messages. And it's just this. You ready? No one. Say no one. No one one who puts God first and above all else will ever regret it. No one who puts God first and above all else will ever regret it. And it is noteworthy, and I would even say of vital importance that we recognize that one of the very last things recorded in the Bible is that blessings and free access to living waters and the tree of life is exclusive to those who do His commandments. Not just know them, but do them. Those who do His commandments are the only ones who enter into the gates of the city. Now, does that mean that, well, actually we are saved by works? No. It means when you're saved, you'll get to work. Because there are works prepared beforehand for us all, right? And we'll do what Jesus commands us to do. Why are you so quiet out there? (laughs) Now, in Matthew 5.16, in the Sermon on the Mount, in the opening section, Jesus said, let your light so shine before men that they see what? Your good works, and glorify your Father, who is where? In heaven, Matthew 6, 33, in the middle of the uh, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Then in John 13, 34, Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And then fourteen fifteen of John, Jesus said, if you love me... Keep my commandments. That's why John would later write in his first letter that expressing your love for God is through obeying his commandments. And Ephesians 2, 8-10, just to bring in some balance through Paul. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Including in Revelation. Salvation is still the gift of God. Amen? It is not of works lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship. It's He who created us in Christ Jesus for... For what? We've been created for what? Good, work. Good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Now listen, one more thing, maybe. <laughs> the free grace movement that many churches are adopting today is at best robbing Christians of their rewards, and at worst, it's a damnable heresy. I personally believe that it's possible for people to sit under this and not really understand uh, the implications of what they're being taught, and that doesn't necessarily indicate that they are unsaved. There's good and godly people that sometimes go to the edge of your friend's churches, right? Right? Absolutely. There's no question about it. But I believe those who teach it, are going to stand before God and give an account for robbing men of their souls through this unbiblical, heretical teaching. Why? Because only those who do what the Lord commands will enter the eternal city. And to say all you have to do is to believe cognitively without any repentance is not just unbiblical. That's anti-Christ. That's against Christ. Now, what we have done for the Lord will determine the rewards we receive and will have forever. Did I say one more thing a moment ago? We got one more thing. Revelation 4, 9-11. through 11. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who sits on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns Before the throne saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. That's the right he has to judge and and condemn to hell. He created all things. And by your will they exist and were created. Now, I've thought this, many have, maybe even most have, that because the 24 elders cast their crowns before the Lord, that this is what we're all going to do as well. Now, even though that's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture, that's been the assumption. But I'm afraid that some have used this to ease the burden of the thought that some may have more than others in heaven. After all, equality of outcome is what's important in these days. Now, here's the first thing we need to recognize about this thinking. Crowns are not rewards. They're a completely different thing. Crowns are not rewards for uh, good works or doing His commandments. There are five crowns mentioned in the New Testament that will be awarded to believers. They are an imperishable crown. They are the crown of rejoicing, the crown of righteousness, the crown of glory, and the crown of life. And each one of these crowns is directly associated with the finished work of Christ on our behalf. They are not rewards. They are gifts given to us for our belief. All of these crowns, including the imperishable inheritance because of Him, are associated with Christ, as I said. We rejoice in Him, right? So the crown of rejoicing is because we're in Him. We've been made righteous through Him. We're glorified when we become like Him. And we have eternal life by and through Him. So all of these crowns are associated with the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Now, what about rewards? In 1 Corinthians 3, 9-15, Paul says, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, you are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another builds on it, But let each one take heed how he builds on it, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire through the testing. For the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on it indoors He will receive a what? A reward. reward. Not a crown. A reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. And again, that's not a reference to afterlife purification. It's the testing of our works. Now, what Jesus has done for us cannot be burned up. The crowns cannot be burned up. They are not going to be tested by fire. They are given to us exclusively through what Christ has done for us. Now, I want to close with a little bit of a zinger. You ready? Just as there are no after-death opportunities for salvation, there are also no after-death opportunities to earn rewards. When you're done, you're done. It's over. Now, Jesus is coming. I think soon. The evidence is clear. Things are wrapping up. And we see the world in a downward spiral that has reached the point of being irreversible. The world has reached the point of no return. And God is giving this world over to delusional thinking. And that's being manifested everywhere. All over the world that's what he said he would do. He would send strong delusion. we're in the midst of it. And it's only going to get worse when the church is removed. And uh, he who hinders is taken out of the way. So I say that for this reason. If you have ever thought, someday I'm going to do this or that or be all in for the Lord, that's today. That's not tomorrow. That's today. The time has come for us to do what John did pull out all the stops, pedal to the metal, no holding back, no holds barred, be all out for Jesus because after the rapture, which could happen at any moment, it happens in the twinkling of an eye, all your chance to do things for Jesus are going to be done. And I don't know about you, but I'm kind of excited about the reality of hearing, well done, good and faithful servant. Not only do I want to have done well, I want to have done lots. Not for the sake of rewards, but for the sake of what has happened for me. What he's done for me. I mean, how could we live any other way? Since we're going to skip all the horrific things that we read about tonight because of what he's done for us. And on top of that, he gives us these amazing crowns. Just gives them to us. Crown of righteousness. Because we're all that? No, because he is. And he gives that to us. He gives us the crown of rejoicing. The crown of righteousness and eternal life and these wonderful things. and An imperishable crown. One that does not fade away. He's done more than enough for us to give him all we have until he comes to get us. Amen? So let's make sure we're all in for him all day all in for him. There was a <clears throat> a missionary, I can't remember the guy's name, but somebody here in the States wrote a letter to a missionary in uh, England where uh, things were just moving radically and God was doing a great work to this particular church. And uh, this uh, American pastor wrote to this British pastor and said, what's going on over there? And uh, the guy's response, he said, How, what are you doing in the church? What's happening? And uh, the, the reply was just simple, and he said, they're all at it, and they're all always at it. In other words, everybody's all in, all the time, and God was using them, and the church was booming. Let's let Him use us, amen? amen? Time is running out, and people are headed for hell by the billions. And God said, there's one group I want to reach the world with the gospel, and that's my church. Bought with my son's blood that the gates of hell will not prevail against. Amen? Amen. Father, we are grateful for this information again tonight. But I pray again, like with John, that it's not just information, but it's motivation. To get us out and, and to see that the clock is ticking and time is running out and the hour is short. And that we need to be about your business. And maybe, maybe we've even got some, some making up to do and some uh, years that have wasted away to uh, to overcome and to uh, put a further effort into what we've been doing for you than we've ever done before. So, Lord, I pray that this this time in our study is, has brought us to that place where we just can't sit by anymore. Where we have to do things for your glory. We have to tell people about Jesus. And, Lord, we pray that your Spirit is in uh, Acts chapter 4, the when they, uh, the place they pray, or when they prayed, the place they were in was shaken. and they all spoke the word of God with boldness. Would you speak uh, through us, God? and may we walk in boldness from this day forward, for your glory, not for the sake of accumulation, God, but that rather we would rescue those who are drawn towards death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. So we thank you, you told us the end of all things. And Lord, I pray you break our hearts for the lost. And we just can't keep quiet when millions are perishing around us. We thank you again for our time together. In the matchless name of Jesus we pray. And all those going to heaven said, Amen.